Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This is going to be our last bonus episode from LAFCON, the R.A. Lafferty Conference. This one is a panel discussion about Lafferty's novel Past Master. The panelists were Robert B., Samuel Tomeno, Nancy Leibovitz, and Daryl Schweitzer. They provided a lot of insight to this novel and a lot of historical information about Thomas More as a man and a thinker. I think this is one not to be missed as well if you've read Past Master. Oh, we didn't get a great recording of this panel, so it does cut off very close to the end, but we still think there's plenty to enjoy here. And just a reminder that we'll be back next week with our first episode on Wolf's early masterpiece, The Fifth Head of Cerberus. Okay, I'm uh, Sam Tomeno. I've been reading Lafferty for, you know, 45-some years or whatever it is. And uh, I review short fiction for sfreview.com. And it's uh, pretty much what I, what I do. I'm uh, Daryl Schweitzer. I'm a writer, editor, critic, and so on. I suppose my distinction in this uh, context is that I'm one of the few people who ever actually interviewed Lafferty. And as I remember correctly, we reprinted the entire interview in last year's program book, so you've all got a copy. Uh, And um, uh, I worked with a couple of magazines that actually published the occasional Lafferty story, including one of my great favorites, which which is You Can't Go Back, which was published in Asimov's and George Sither's Day. And um, there was an there was in the issue in which I did the interview with with Lafferty for for Amazing, and I remember there was a Lafferty story in that issue, but I now can't remember which one. Uh, so I, you know, had uh, I've obviously been reading Lafferty since the 1960s, and um, I think like everybody else, we're still trying to figure out what Lafferty is about. You know? But he won't go away. My name is Robert B. Um, I've been reading Lafferty for a while. I actually published an article on Past Master in the Internet Review of Science Fiction, which was republished in East of Laughter. Uh, And, uh, you know, so uh, I've been reading Lafferty and science fiction for a long time. Uh, Nancy? My name is Nancy Lebovitz. Um, I've also been reading Lafferty since the 60s. I may have accumulated a slightly odd angle on him, or several slightly odd angles, and now onwards to the panel. All right, well, what about religion in the novels? What about religion in the novels? What about, uh, I remember Lafferty said, I think it's in Robert's interview, because I know it wasn't in mine, so it was asked about, um, about, you know, what was the appeal of Catholicism, and he simply said, well, it's true. And um, well, actually, you know the you know the the religion in this novel is, is as is usual with Lafferty, weirdly ambiguous. You know, on Astrobe, there is they they, they well they they regard themselves they're sort of post-religious, certainly post-Christian, but there are little traces of it here and there. But then again, he make it he, well. I certainly got the point that Astrobe is not a desirable place, where he, they described it. Um, what was it? Uh, the Ansel, the the seal, the 
underwater telepathic underwater creature described uh, being an, being uh, a member of Golden Astrobe, the uh, you know the the conformist society. It's sort of like like being a drop of water dropped into the ocean, so that you uh, have lost all identity. Now, this is actually this is an, an interesting religious statement right there, because you know Buddhists regard that that's a Buddhist definition of nirvana. You realize, uh, Buddhists regard that as a good thing. Lafferty clearly regards that as a bad thing. The total uh, abolition of identity. Um, so. Well, yeah, there is there is religion in this novel, and of course, inevitably, since it's about Thomas More, uh, the subject has to come up. Although, you know, what he uh, what he gets himself executed for is is uh, vetoing a bill three times, and the bill was actually about something fairly trivial that he was originally perfectly willing to sign, but he, but he didn't sign it because he resented the fact that various people working inside his head were manipulating him. So it was more about intellectual freedom. Not, not entirely. What were they trying to ban in the uh, bill? I don't remember. What did the bill say? It Abolition was... of re- remnants. It was the last bits of religion. Oh. Yeah, they're trying to destroy religion. That's he wouldn't go along with the destruction. Well, one point he said he would. Well, it, he, yeah, he said he would. He said, "Sure, I'll sign it." And then, and then they started to screw with his head, and then he said he got basically refused to. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I my notes say the bill would outlaw religion, and that's yeah. Uh, yeah, really what it was about. And, and the Metropolitan had just died the night before. And there were, you know, Who's the Pope? His followers still around. And, uh, and, but there were some other religious groups even still in existence. That's a good point, too. That, that it's, uh, Although the, no- the novel is very Roman Catholic, he does point out that he, he defends like the, the Jews and other religious groups in the novel as well. I mean, to some extent, the novel is defending the importance of spirituality in general. Now, now I think that considering when the, you know, I, I think some of the ambivalence that Thomas More is, is feeling towards religion Thinking about it might be more might be a reflection of Lafferty's uh, view of the times. <clears throat> I mean, uh, when he wrote that, you know, the folk masses were happening. We were literally singing "Kumbaya," and uh, and uh, I mean that one little sequence in the, in the book about the, the the current you know Catholic mass and the guitar. I mean that is about as satirical as, as you ever see Lafferty get. And obviously, he did not like that, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the way things are. Were then. And things could get pretty strange back in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I remember my local, my local uh, University of Delaware uh, church, uh, you know, one Easter had something they called a prayer egg, which was a big paper mache egg-shaped thing that you could go in and contemplate or something or other. It was a prayer egg. So, <laughs> Did a little baby Jesus pop out? I remember them dancing in the aisles and, you know, modern-style dance, and, and I'm sure he would have disapproved, strongly disapproved well, yeah. of that. Well, there, there, was a, there was a whole movement, this was later on, called liturgical dancing, which, fortunately, I never saw. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but that was actually much later. One gets the impression Lafferty probably would have preferred the Latin Mass and keep it that way. Yeah. Well, 
uh, one of the big things in the book, though, is that apparently demons are real. Udin is real. What exactly is wrong with Golden Astrobe? I could never quite figure out because it wasn't tight control of behavior like Kamazots. It whether it was that everything is taken care of and there's nothing worth doing might be. You know, it's at least I could never figure out quite why people were fleeing to Cathead. Yeah, because there was no individuality left. It was perfect. It was perfect. To be, it was perfect beyond stupefying boredom. If you had absolutely everything, there's no stimulus left. Um, well, well, I mean, preparatory to rereading Taskmaster, I read Utopia, and it really would sound like a real boring society to live in. They've got basically four different styles of clothing, depending on whether you're male or female, married or single, and uh, and, and that's it. And, and all the all the cities. Are laid out exactly the same, and uh, now you now you, you 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 spend you know a certain amount of hours working, uh, and uh, and then and then you can also have time when you you go to lectures, uh, and that's presumably when you're getting all this, you know, talking about literature right. and stuff like that. But uh, curiously enough, a lot of what they show for me, what they show in Past Master doesn't sound like. The utopia described in Utopia. But you know, the first thing Thomas More says about Utopia in Passmaster is people thought it was was a good place and it was really a satire and it was intended to be a bad place. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 so is it a hellish vision? Well, well, thinking about that, I mean, well, at the end of at the end of Utopia, he, he says he likes some of it and not the rest and not other things. And I see. I assume he likes the idea of probably people having leisure time to. Mm. To to study things and li- and to read literature and things like that, but I don't think he would like the the sameness and the enforced sameness of the society. So Thomas More was very attracted to uh, the monastic lifestyle. He considered that monastic yeah. lifestyle and that that's pattern of monasteries that that yeah. world. But he also says in the novel, and the historical figure and the character in the novel are completely different. Or maybe not completely different, but it's not a realistic portrayal of Sir Thomas More. And in the novel, he says that this is his own sour joke of the world. Yeah. It's like he's a science fiction writer trapped in his own world. Well, in the first way. half of Utopia is this guy they're talking to, and apparently More really met this, this, this individual, I think. Uh, and and his critiques of French and, and English society, and they sound like perfectly valid critiques. Yeah. Uh, and, and then I think that more than has this guy, this guy goes, but I've been to this place called Utopia. Let me tell you all about it. And and then he describes it. And I think that more thinks that's that's a reaction in the absolute. I'm guessing most of the wrong direction. If if, if he's saying he doesn't like. Well, it's utterly ambiguous. He puts the description of Utopia in the uh, the mouth of an imaginary character, Raphael Hathelday yeah. or something like that, and then he criticizes it at the end. But right. it's not clear whether that's because he didn't like it or he's just giving himself plausible deniability. I mean, people would get executed yeah. for heretical beliefs at that time. Well, right. So he's giving himself plausible deniability <laughs> so he can't get in trouble. Yeah, I mean, what? One thing to remember about well, the historical Thomas More, 
oversaw the execution of some people for heretical yes. belief. He was yeah. not uh, shy about about toasting a heretic or two, as long as they're the right kind of heretic. Well, right. the, 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 the people most uh, the image most people have of, of Thomas More, of course, is from the Man for All Seasons, you know, with the you know, the, the, the famous movie, and that's a part of him. But uh, you never get the impression that's his second wife. That he had, you know, quite a few children, and uh, well, basically, he, like you that. know, he, the real Thomas More, participated in the, you know, 16th century slu- religious slugfest as enthusiastically as anybody else. Yeah, you know, basically, this was a time of religious warfare. Tolerance was an incomprehensible idea. No one, would, you could probably got burned at the stake for advocating tolerance, uh, which nobody thought of. Basically, if somebody, if somebody had the, uh, you know, the wrong views on something, you obviously had to kill them. Because otherwise they were going to subvert you. And, and yes, Jesuits really, well, that's a little later. But in Elizabeth's time, Jesuits really were trying to overthrow the government. Uh, but basically it was a time of ferocious religious warfare. So he, um, which, interestingly enough, we call the Renaissance. But um, the, uh, you know, the Renaissance has a dark side. And, and all of that is in Thomas More, who then, of course, by virtue of being martyred, became a Catholic saint. But also remember, he wrote Utopia before the Reformation started. The Reformation started a few years afterwards, so he was probably more, quote, tolerant at that time than a few years later. He was a religious reformer who did not want to go as far as Luther. So these are very complicated historical topics. after he had gone to uh, to, um, was it Brussels, I think? Yeah, he knew Erasmus. He was friends with Erasmus. But maybe get back to past master because, yeah. Yeah, actually, I want to bring up, I think the central question of past master is, was this entire campaign to bring Thomas More back to life and bring him to Asterby, was this a success or a failure? Oh, was it a limited success? Basically, the history ends and everything changes. Did they? Did the people who the three guys who bring him? Who you know, on page one we meet these three guys going to bring back Thomas More. Did they intend to go all the way through and have him executed in order to bring about these changes, or did it just kind of happen? I, one of them did. It just it just kind of happened. I'm sure. Well, one of them knew he was going to die, so he, I don't know if he planned to be killed in this. But um, no, it's it says um, that. Since uh, Thomas More has been seeing time travelers from the future of these events, he knows that Astrobe is still kind of shaky, but it's got a different wobble. So, hmm. partial success, I guess. Well, they overthrow, don't they overthrow the government? Well, he described it as being like, he described it as being like the end of history, where he talks about um, how antiquity ended and, and the Middle Ages began, and then the Middle Ages ended, and... And uh, the Renaissance began, and, and he's talking about a change like that. Yes. If they're, they're bringing, but then, then we're basically, well, it seems everybody dies, and then uh, we're not really sure. In the, you know, the last page or so, we're just sort of watching and waiting to see if anything will, co- will come of this. They, well, we they have, have an pr- answer earlier in the book. Great destruction, but they have uh, not, uh, we, you know, we have not seen the rebirth. We're just hoping we will. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I just want to say a general thing about government in this book because I'm inclined to think that nobody knows what's going on and the important things can't be put into words. Um, you know, they have a government, but it's done by some kind of a telepathic survey method. Um, 
Yeah, this is one thing where I mean, like the, the apparently you've got like uh, this president who's elected, mm-hmm. you know, popularly, but the whatever the legislature is all done by computer, which isn't utopia either. And he's not allowed to actually do anything. Yeah. If he yeah. vetoes a bill three times, he's executed. Yeah, but I mean, but the, but the, but like I said, the the way the the way the government works is not the way. Again, I'll just mention not the way the government works in. In utopia, so I mean, when they say they they've imitated utopia, they really haven't. No, not not directly. But I think what he's trying to say is that uh, the the well, Moore does feel that he's entered his world. That he does say that very yeah, directly. Yeah. But yeah. you're right; it's certainly not directly patterned on it. Yeah, well, it's got some things in common. It has well, it's not so much common ownership of everything, but all your material wants are provided for. Uh, and, and there's also total conformity. The total conformity is a big point. I mean, one of the problems with utopias in general is that the only way you maintain a utopia is through conformity. If you look at utopian yeah. novel after utopian novel, because if there's any variation from the socialist utopia or whatever the nature of the utopia is, then it falls apart very quickly. So there's always a level of totalitarianism to utopias. Yeah, so the result is that many people go out and deliberately live in squalor. Yeah. Well, part of it is that somehow people and Ansels and whatever maintain enough individuality that they can want to get out of it. Um, I don't know where to go with that, except it's just observable. Yeah, there's also a complete lack of privacy mm-hmm. that's both in Sir Thomas More's yeah. Utopia and in this. Yeah. And the lack of privacy in, in, uh, in Lafferty's novel is even more extreme because uh, they can actually... They have yeah, they've they they got computers and yeah. machines. They can get inside your brain and... Yeah. They have the open mind act. Yeah. Where everyone yeah. can get inside everyone else's mind. Which is but, exactly what, what Thomas More is presenting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he yeah, said yeah, the I snakes think, in I his head. That can be an extension of, you know, a science fictional equivalent of, you know, utopia, yeah. But it, it, it's basically, it is a collectivist utopia. Although the part of the unspecified aspect of this book is nobody seems to be quite sure what the Astro B dream is. Uh, I mean, you know, you can tell whether the program mechanical killers are pursuing you more actively or not. But yeah, you, you don't get an actual good look at the society really at all. You know, I mean, yeah. a, a goal of an astrophy. You get a look at the you know, mm-hmm. the other places. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, the other places. Well, you got to look at the the uh, sort of the, the outer magnificence of it. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's a society where. Yes. In order to be perfect, there has to be somebody re- re- following you around, ready to kill you on this, for the slightest right. deviation. Right. And they've, in fact, programmed machines to do this very, very thing. You even have people pretending to be programmed mechanical killers. Hmm. <laughs> um, One other thing I wanted to mention now before I forget, because yeah. I was kind of, I probably noticed this the other times I've read, at least the last time I read it. Uh, it is the one character named Battersea, who mm-hmm. is large and loud, and and I think the name Battersea to me is probably a reference to G.K. Chesterton, who hmm. I believe that's where he lived, and that's sort of a description of him. And uh, I, I I I think that might be somewhat of a little just aside to uh, G.K. Chesterton mm-hmm. as the character, the minor, very minor character, Battersea. 
Yeah, actually, one thing I will mention, uh, I know, well, we noticed that actually in the the non-golden parts of Astropy and the Feral Strip, yeah. there are other there are attempts at other forms of government, including the the we we mean it, the Emperor Charles the two hundred sixteenth or whatever his number was sixty first I think. Uh, well, anyway, uh, Emperor Charles is well, he, he's expected to last about one day, yeah, and then and then he'll sooner he'll get killed fairly soon, and then there'll be another one. But he, everybody just seems to think that's a fine way to run things. Um, yeah. This is, if nothing else, a, I wonder if it was actually a satirical allusion. You know, you know the Emperor Charles, who was a contemporary of, uh, of uh, Moore himself, was a very different Emperor Charles, who was the most powerful man in the world. And he lasted far more than one day. He, in fact, ruled the largest empire of all time, in theory, at least on the map. Although many of the people living in his empire mm-hmm. never heard of him. Yeah. Because he, the Emperor Charles, uh, supposedly ruled all of North America except all of the Americas except Brazil, yes. uh, virtually all of Europe except Britain and France, uh, and uh, a good deal of the Pacific too. I think. Uh, yeah, that would be the Soviets. Yeah. No, it was it was it was Charles of Habsburg, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, who, right. who basically ruled most, theoretically ruled most of the world at this time. But he, so here we have him reduced to this kid who ruled for one day. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh, but anyway, um, <clears throat> so actually, one thing we, we should mention: this is actually one of the more popular uh, Lafferty novels. You know, I think it, it was pretty clear from the uh, not to mention Camel's discussion that there are there are some Lafferty novels that are never going to reach large audiences. Um, I mean, if you if you have a, a a novel which requires the reader to sort of work out uh, Lafferty's reading of Young's reading of Nietzsche. This is for a very specialized audience. Um, whereas the Pastmaster was actually more, well, it was published as an ace special. It got a good deal of attention. It was, I recall, it was nominated for Hugo and I think a Nebula. Um, and it has been actually reprinted more than, more than once. So this is actually one of the more accessible and popular ones. Well, I think, you know, thinking about why. I think it has more of a pronounced plot than a lot of the other novels. If you really think about it, I mean, a lot of them they're just glumping along, and this thing and that thing is happening. But there, there does definitely seem to be a, a definite plot. It's a plot in Fourth, fourth Mansions too. But, I mean, this one just seems more of a, a central plot that uh, you know, again, might might make it more accessible. Well, it's it's sort of also it's sort of a, a wonder tour in a way. I noticed a lot of Lafferty's stories and a lot, a lot of his novels are basically narration by declamation. Uh, I did re- read uh, East of Laughter recently, and um, a lot of his novels progress by people with funny names making long declamations about how things are. Then yeah. somebody else will explain how things are. Somebody else will explain yeah. how things are. <laughs> and, and in fact, the book develops that way. Um, uh, East of Laughter is all about everybody discovering the world isn't real. And then they, they sort of they're trying to uh, reestablish reality, uh, and we, we meet the what we'll refer to the the scribbling giants, who are the people who actually write the world into existence. But there isn't actually any a great deal of forward motion in that book. You know, there is more motion in this book. Um, although, as far as plot goes, certainly this would. Can you imagine trying to film this? <laughs> it would probably be impossible and incomprehensible. 
You could have more luck with this than virtually any. Oh yeah, right? you would, but it's still <laughs> pretty you have more more luck with this than not to mention cameras. Yeah, yeah, it would be, but because because in essence, there's more to see. There's more. There are actually things going on. There's visual yeah. spectacle. Yeah, there's visual spectacle. Yeah. Although he he, he describes it very quickly. He tends to sort of jump over things. He even know. has fast. And my, I love the episode where they're traveling. Uh, from Earth, and they they have faster than light travel, and he explains the way the faster than light travel is one of the more unique faster than light travel drives, mm. where they change gender and they have to live what was it several months and a couple of weeks or something. I may have that yeah. wrong, but they have to, but they have to have all the dreams they would normally have in that period of time, but it's compressed. Yeah, yeah. And, well, I mean, the way he describes it is. He says they reverse polarity and they sing soprano. And that's as yeah. specific as he gets. Mm. So so you're guessing, yeah, they reversed a bit. And then and then Sir Thomas More is upset because he's changed gender. I mean, that's never completely explained, but no, that's the it, implication. It's just him kind of screaming at, at soprano. Yeah. And, and, mm. and you get the impression probably he just sort of inverted a bit part of his... Yeah. If, mm. if I'm thinking, you know, just my, my vision of it. Singing soprano uh, all but, of a sudden. But this is like so much out of the science fiction tradition. How many novels have been written where they have to have some absurd explanation for the faster than light uh, drive? Yeah. And some of the explanations are the silliest things imaginable if you really think about it. But this is by far the craziest. Well, you need to yeah, learn well, one, 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 one more thing, well, a couple things about why this novel is more popular. One of them is that. Lafferty deals in ambiguity a lot. You know, space is vague, time is vague, identity is vague, but he doesn't do that here. So, you know, things are more concrete. Yeah. Um, and the true. descriptions are more concrete. I noticed this because I read this after I, I read, um, uh, not to mention camels. And it was just such a relief. Uh, you know, there, there was solidity, there was colors. Yeah. Um... So there's that. Um, well, one of the things I, I, I was remarking on is that the people go to live in this you know, in poverty, but it's it ain't genteel poverty. It's really nasty, horrible, demeaning, you know, really, really horrible poverty, and you know, and selling their children and and working, you know, eighteen hours a day, and this ain't like you know the the Cratchit's sitting around on Christmas dinner with a small goose. Yeah. No, it's it's um, uh, remember the, the anecdote about the bit about the fishermen, where they uh, they're, they're, with every load of fish, there's a couple of corpses in there, and they just charge a little extra for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, there are. Well, there's, there's a bit about how demons are making cat head worse, although there's no hint about what cat head would be like if demons were not messing with it. I'm not really sure who the demon. I mean, are they real demonic demons, or are they demons coming out of the minds of people who are trying to maintain this impossible dream? Well, are the program persons demons? Uh, I think demons moved into them, or moved into them, or were the or was is it really? I mean, supernaturally demonic, or is this merely some sort of, uh, in essence, a rogue AI, uh, something that? Uh, that grew out of the the inherently um, 
you know, dehumanizing, uh, uh, automated nature of astrobe. Now, there's a question. Okay, I want to talk about evil in this book. <laughs> The, the 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 real bad the, what was it Uden or Auden? Uden. Yeah, nothingness. Who, nothingness is sort of a personified, sort of like Lovecraft's uh, Azathoth, you know, the primal chaos. At the core of everything, there there is this need, this nothingness, which which is sort of personified nothingness. But what, do what, and where does that name come from, and what does it mean? It means nothing. I mean, and that's part. That's one of the big themes of the novel that. Uh, the reason why everyone wants to leave uh, leave the golden life is because it's a life without meaning. It's a life of nothingness. It actually connects even with, with the concept of nihilism that you get in, in a writer like Nietzsche, which actually connects with Gregorio's uh, lecture from this morning. You can make that connection. Uh, philosophers have long talked about, you know, with the decline of Christianity. Well, Nietzsche actually, in fact, with the decline of Christianity, you go from a life of meaning to a life of nothingness, you know, without meaning, meaning or significance. And that's, uh, if you think of it as a religious work, that's what's going part of the significance of the novel. Uh, that, that's often been pointed out in the modern world without, with the decline of religion and the rise of secularization. Uh, people have no reason to live or no significance in their life. And that's, I think, the reason why you have uh, Udin personified as a character. I mean, another thing that's interesting about this novel, though, is all the allegory um, with a character who's personified as nothingness. But it's not just him. You also have uh, Eve... You have uh, Adam, uh, you have the devil fish, you have to kill the devil every day. That's, you know, that's a central scene in the novel. So, you know, you have a very overt allegory all the way through the novel. And you also have amusing throwaways. I'm not sure of the allegorical significance of the guy who... uh, Traded his, uh, remember he traded one of his kidneys for a, uh, for the eye of an idol. And, and then his kidney got turned out, whatever, they, they gilded his kidney or something. It turned out to be worth more than the eye. So he, he, he swapped one of his kidneys for the, the jeweled eye of the idol and discovered he'd lost money because <laughs> the kidney had been gilded and it was worth more. <laughs> <laughs> well, some of the, I mean, some of what Lafferty values is individual quirkiness. And so having cool, tall tales for dreams might not be an allegory. It might be a fact of what living properly is. You know, like, I don't think the guy who is sitting on the one public pot, you know, he's not an allegory for anything. He's running a con game. And people like him for it. And that's why... You know, the feral strips are better than golden astrobe. So I notice we're all pronouncing it astrobe. I mean, it is, is it astrobe or is it astrobe? I always thought it was astrobe, but I'm assuming I'm wrong since everyone else is doing it differently. <laughs> okay. Well, it sounds, because it looks a little bit like apostrophe. Yeah. It's probably where the pronunciation comes from. I was trying to adjust to calling it Astrobe because I don't know. We'd have to ask Lafferty and he Yeah. Somebody may have a recording somewhere or, or somebody a memory. Has a recording. 
Well, there weren't a whole lot of those recordings. We discovered half of one, one of them was missing, uh, and I don't think he mentioned it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know how he pronounced it. But anyway, it's astrobe. Um, but if we, well, maybe we're just programmed to do that. It's actually the snakes in your head that are making you do this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but certainly what he's created here is a um, a vision of a, uh, well, of a wannabe utopia that no one would want to live in. Well, one thing I, I was wondering about, just thinking it existed for, what, a couple centuries or something? I said, yeah, yeah, and it's only the yeah. past, 20, years, past 20 years that people have been setting up slums. Yeah. So is it possible that there was some change of policy or something? I mean, maybe it was just that... I'm people, sorry, it's 500 years. It had been good in the last 25, not. Okay. So, you know, it's kind of interesting. Is it just that nobody had... It hadn't occurred to people that they were so miserable that living in a slum would be better, or had there been some change in Asperby to make the slums suddenly make sense to people. It may be that it just came to a culmination, that, that it yeah. took a while to develop this society as it is. Uh, I mean, it had to be set up from scratch. You remember how it was actually discovered by St. Brendan? Right. Which, you know, they first interstellar coracle. You know, you know basically St. Brendan, propelled only by faith, managed to sail right off the earth. <laughs> Then humans got there, then everybody else got there in spaceships much later. 